Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Leah, cervical, thoracic, lumbar, sacral, coccyx. And I'm Will Davis, a T-800. That's right, we are back! Bad pun, courtesy of Will's problems. I'm assuming that if there's nerds listening to a podcast, they have probably seen the film Terminator. I think they'll get the joke, it's still a bad pun. It's a stat. Nonetheless, we have had a busy summer break. We've had a summer. Which is unusual in this part of the world. We've done some travelling. We've done some melting. Lots of melting. More melting than anything else. But we're back. The science is back. It is time to do some science. Because as much as we are back, it's probably about time that those of you out there in the educational world are either thinking, oh hey, my kids are going to school, I am going to school, or oh god, I have to go teach some kids at school. I mean, it might be that, like us, you have no children and have finished your studies and therefore are just sitting on the bus in the morning going, who are all these infants? Why are there so many miniature people listening to very loud music? That's my experience of children, generally. Small and noisy. (laughs) You might also just be enjoying the stationary sales at Wilco's. What we've got for you is some educational research to help research your education. Starting off, first of all, with the ultimate college experience, according to the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, is go nuts. Well, not full nuts, go, like, adequately nuts. Or rather, enjoy social events and college sports in moderation, having planned for how you will make up for work you might potentially be missing out on by doing those things. Like, time management, work-life balance, that kind of thing. That's the recommendation. What they term as a strategic indulgence. You go, I'm going to go to that college baseball game on Saturday with my friends. If that's the indulgence of your choice. Waking up to go anywhere on a Wednesday was possibly the biggest hurdle facing me at university, but according to research led by Lil Jia, a social psychologist at the National University of Singapore, this study shows that instead of avoiding temptations like a plague, students can make plans to enjoy them without compromising the overall long-term goal pursuit. I'm guessing the goal pursuit here being college. One of those high GPAs. Yeah, work-life balance seems to be the lesson here of if you're gonna do something that might take away from your studies, make time to catch up with the studies. If you funnel yourself only towards whatever it is that you're working towards with no time for human experience and relaxation and appreciating the finer things in life like a baseball game, I think that's a fine thing, I don't really know, then you might be worse off for it. All work, no play makes Lil Gia an unhappy psychologist. And if you're an educator who's hoping to get the kids you're working with into college, here's one weird tip to reduce teen delinquency. It delights me that this article has a headline like a clickbait. The research done by the University of Kansas finds that the one weird thing that mentors can do to help reduce teen delinquency is, like, show up and care? Isn't that most of the thing that mentors do for kids, is show up and care? That is kind of, I think the commonly accepted definition of the word mentor is someone who's, you know... Showing up and caring? Helping. Hmm. Generally, this study is particularly looking at non-kin mentors, so teachers, sports coaches, maybe a youth pastor or something. A figure of influence. And when these mentors make kids feel like they are valued and important human beings, they are less likely to engage in delinquent activities such as lying to their parents, shoplifting, getting into fights, hurting people, running away, taking cars without permission, stealing, burglary, using weapons, selling drugs, and more. 
that's quite the breadth of delinquency. Like, that starts off as capers and ends up in crimes. It's quite easy to slide from capers into crimes, especially if you're already in a vulnerable social position. Which I suppose is why the research led by Margaret Kelly, an associate professor of American studies at the University of Kansas, says... These mentoring programs need to do more than just fill time. They need to nurture relationships and have accountability. She says, we need to do more than just talk the talk. We actually need to get out there and make these kids feel like they're noticed, needed, and socially accepted. And yeah, please do, at every opportunity, make kids in your care feel like they are noticed, needed, and accepted. That's just being nice. Interestingly, the study also found that different types of mentoring behaviour were more common depending on the sex of the mentor and of the mentee. Boys tend to find guidance and advice from their mentors. Girls tended to receive emotional nurturing. More girls than boys, for example, believed their mentor acted like a parent, which may as much as anything be a symptom of the situations where you're more likely to have a woman mentoring you. Hmm... I'm not sure that's been controlled for. Well, if they are going for parental representation, then what encapsulates a parent more than a dad joke? It's one of the things you get as you become a dad. You have a book of dad jokes handed to you, or so I'm led to believe. They kind of come around to the maternity ward with a bouquet and a balloon and a book of 101 groaners. Um, if that's the case, where are your secret children? Because you're already on the dad jokes, and you okay. haven't told me about any children. Okay, if you need the help, they are there for you. <laughs> it's, a, it's like a mentoring scheme, again. <laughs> Not everyone has the innate ability to crack a pun. They come in just like, Clive, I'm sorry, but you have, you've never managed to make a single joke in your entire life. I don't think you... You just don't seem to have it in you. So here's the book. We start off with the basics when they go... Dad, I'm hungry, you say. Hi, hungry, I'm Dad. And you can you can build on it from there. Yeah, and then on to the next card. Sam, Sam, you're killing it out there. We appreciate all that you're doing on the local comedy circuit, but you need to, like, tone that down. Start listening to Fleawood Mac, okay? So actually, the jokes should be less funny. Like, you the TV special was so good. Mm, but big fans. You have to make the kids, like, just slightly embarrassed to introduce their friends to you. Not hugely, just very slightly. What does this have to do with anything? Well, Arizona <laughs> State University will tell you that science students appreciate instructor humour. Not just some, not just most. 99% of them like it when their instructor has a, some sense of humour. It doesn't seem to matter whether the joke is funny or not. It matters if the joke is offensive or not. It doesn't matter if the joke is funny or not. The students giving their responses to instructor humour in this study found that they found instructors who used humour, they felt that they had better relationships with them, they found the material more memorable because a joke had been cracked about it, and that didn't change even if the joke was not funny. It's yeah, the effort that counts. If the joke is offensive, then that's not going to help your rapport with students as such. In fact, it has the opposite effect, and students found it less easy to concentrate on the material if their instructor had cracked a joke they found offensive, and, as you might expect, they felt like they had a worse relationship with that teacher. In fact, Caitlin Cooper, lead author and postdoctoral researcher in the lab that conducted the study, said, Is the joke about cute animals? Probably okay. A pun about science? Probably okay. Like, you can still make jokes. We're not all waiting to be offended. So yeah, humour goes a long way to helping humanise and make a class more memorable. The researchers do note that 
men and women had different responses to the humour used in the classroom. Men were less likely to find jokes about gender, sexual orientation, religious identity and race offensive, and women were much less likely to find them funny. I mean, it's surprising that there would be that stark a difference, and I'm wondering if they have at any point taken into account the race of the student they're asking, the sexual orientation of the student they're asking. We'll have to dig into the participant data from the university here. <laughs> I don't know how well anonymized it is, but... But then those students, seeing a funny instructor, might eventually want to become professors themselves, or some kind of leader, some kind of figurehead. And what makes her a good leader anyway? I feel like recent history has raised that question uh, endless times, ongoing times, of what makes a good leader. But according to the University of Zurich, well, they get into the brain of it all. Their research suggests one of the distinguishing characteristics of someone who can take the lead, as opposed to someone who's more likely to follow, is how happy you are making decisions that affect other people. Which is something that a leader of a group of people does. They will have to take responsibility for those actions, and if you are averse to taking group responsibility, they find that you are less likely or less willing to put yourself in a leadership role. They localise this in the brain, in fact, by using functional MRI scanning to identify the neurobiological processes taking place in the brains of participants who are given a survey, a kind of a question set of self-trials where any decision they make in this panel of questions would affect only them, and group trials where it's them and other people affected. They were testing for several things which people intuitively believe might make a better leader or more likely to take the lead. The idea that individuals who are less afraid of potential losses, taking risks, or who like being in control will be more willing to take responsibility, but these characteristics didn't bear out through the study. The characteristic tracked best with responsibility aversion was a greater need for certainty about the best course of action when the decision had an effect on others, and the more pronounced someone's aversion to responsibility was to start with, the more pronounced that effect is. Makes sense to me, personally, because, I mean, if there's a decision that I have to make that affects more people than just me, then I do take more time and put more deliberation into it, because, to my mind, someone who will kind of charge on ahead with whatever decision they're going to make without adequately considering the input and effect it has on others is not doing a great job. But maybe that doesn't make me a leader. This does feel like something which can be trained into people. Maybe it's just my innate conscious self going... I don't want to seem like a dick. <laughs> Which, frankly, if you start making decisions for other people without giving them due time and consideration, I feel like that's kind of what you do. You seem like a dick. But, interestingly, Micah Edelson, the lead author, does note that the change in the amount of certainty required to make a decision accounts for many different leadership types, right along the scale from an authoritarian who does not care the tiniest little bit what you want before they make a decision about your life, and people who want to approach things in a more egalitarian and communal sort of way. Which I guess is me. I know, I just don't want to do something that might upset any of my friends. How many of those would you say you have? Like, close ones? Acquaintances? Tell you what, let me open up Facebook and see how many people <laughs> I have on a friends list there. Bearing in mind the multiple universities you've studied at and socialised at, which does give you an opportunity to connect with lots of people. 
uh, and to ignore them. <laughs> According to Facebook, I have 464 friends. I would say I talk to like 12 of them often. Apparently I've got 232, and the ones I speak to are probably less than 10. Even including the ones I'm related to, which is... Um... Oh yeah, like family is no-go. <laughs> you can just write that right off. But there is, as you may know, a number, which probably represents the number of relationships most human beings can sustain at any one time. That is the Dunbar number, named for Robin Dunbar, Professor of Anthropology at Oxford University, who also participates in this new study that shows there's some flexibility in that. Whilst this study is interesting, I would like to draw attention to, if anyone's reading this paper at home, on their phone, wherever they can find it, the picture to go with it is some people walking through a public space and they've got some circles drawn around on top of them to show, like, friendship distance. The caption for this is, People walking through a square with circles around them. Very accurate, and it describes nothing about the science. But the relevance of this is, most people typically probably have two or three really, really close friends. Maybe 20, 30 people who you'd probably say hello to and have a chat with if you saw them in the street. And a hundred or so people who you sort of know. You're like... I'm acquainted with them, but some communities are much smaller than that. So what do you do with that extra social capacity? You get closer to more people. Ancho Sanchez, professor at the University of Carlos III in Madrid in the Department of Mathematics, says that it is the first time, as far as we know, that a purely mathematical theory based on the basic physical principle that of maximum entropy, apparently your friends are entropic, predicts a social phenomenon or structure which is subsequently found in the data. So they get to say they saw this coming. Interestingly, they do note that it can work in reverse, that you can't have loads of super intimate relationships with people. I saw lots of evidence in my university years which found some people trying to prove them wrong, having very intimate relationships with lots of people. While sharing bodily fluids might be considered intimate, it's not necessarily developing a deep emotional intimacy. Certainly not if you're doing it like every night of Freshers' Week, for example. I mean, don't get me wrong, they were having a great time. Strategic indulgence. We were talking about <laughs> that earlier. There'll be people handing out all manners of things when you get there for Freshers' Week. Make sure you pick up a handful of contraceptives of your choice. You might need them. Who knows? Especially barrier methods. Hormonal contraceptives only work to prevent pregnancy, not to prevent STIs. Our freshest flu is taking on a whole new meaning with the spread of some resistant bacteria, isn't it? Yikes. But anyway, now that we're done talking about friends and a bit of slut shaming, for which I do apologise. I'm not shaming anybody. We're all having a good time. Yeah. If that's what you're down for, take all reasonable preventive care. Take all precautions. Just look after yourself. Like, these people are just out there, they're following their passion. Speaking of which... And whilst finding some passion is certainly one way to spend a freshness week, the idea that you can find your passion as a lifestyle choice and follow that through for a healthy and happy life might not actually be the best way of approaching things, despite what all the Instagrammers and bloggers will tell you. At least that's what the Yale NUS College and Stanford University propose in their latest piece of research. Specifically, they're looking at the way that phrasing might affect the way you approach trying to find something you love to spend the rest of your life doing. 
they are suggesting that taking a fixed theory of interest suggests that your passions exist in you already and are just there to be found rather than try lots of things and develop a passion. You mean grow and learn as a human being over time? Yes. Take that growth theory of interest. Explore. Learn. What were you really into as an eight-year-old? Being a mermaid. Being a literal mermaid adopted by my land-based parents. I was kind of a weird kid. <laughs> I was wondering if it was like an Egyptology phase or like <laughs> a, a bug phase, but mermaid phase is okay. Um, yeah, imagine if that was your fixed theory of growth, where everything you had to do going forwards would be in pursuit of being a mermaid. Actually, that sounds great. I could definitely tolerate working as a mermaid for a living, but I would maybe have had a slightly less healthy relationship with food if I'd been really focused on staying thin enough to, like, be wearing a bikini top all the time. And eating well. all of that kelp. <laughs> Who said mermaids eat kelp? Well, you don't like fish. Yeah, but, you know, there's like... Chomp on some coral? Mammals and stuff. They're fishy mammals, though, aren't they? They're not. Okay, so you'd be like one of those selkie mermaids preying on sailors. We're veering. <laughs> so this research is described as being especially relevant to countries like Singapore, where apparently students are funneled towards specialising very early in their education, which is something which I know is complained about quite a lot in the English education system by comparison to the Scottish system, where they are encouraged to take more generalised A levels, AS levels, of their equivalent qualification at that kind of age. And apparently Singapore's education system began requiring GCE A-level students to take at least one contrasting subject for admission into one of the six local autonomous universities. So if someone's really into their science, they are encouraged to pick up a language or an art, something from the humanities branch of things, and vice versa. And wouldn't you know, this seems to lend to making more well-rounded individuals. As ever, this podcast does not support the art-science dichotomy as an absolute. Branch out. Get interdisciplinary with it. So the growth theory was put to the test against the fixed theory of a very streamlined education experience in which students from arts and sciences backgrounds were given two academic articles to read, one from a very scientific background, one from a very artsy background, then had the students read the one from their background, one from the opposite background. The people who were focused on the fixed theory, where your interests are innate, were less interested in the thing they didn't already have a developed interest in, as opposed to the ones with the growth theory where you can learn new things and find new things to be interested in, were more likely to be engaged with the article from outside their specialism. And at the end of the press release for this, Dr. Paul O'Keefe says that encouraging people to develop their passion can not only promote a growth theory, but also suggest that it is an active process. So yeah, try something new. Have a go. But once you've got through Freshers' Week, made some friends, and are getting down to doing your interdisciplinary work, there's going to be a lot of reading to do. I still have shelves filled with books that I read the once, found the three relevant paragraphs from a chapter that they wanted to reference because they wrote the book and just had to keep coming back to that for four years and spent £200 on. But apparently, teens these days, and kids these days, are on their social medias, not reading any books. They're doing the tweeting and the gram. <laughs> the gram. The important thing 
is they're probably still reading for school because, like, you have to. And we are talking about teenagers specifically, so we're looking more at your secondary school students. I mean, I know I basically completely stopped reading for pleasure during university because I was doing a lot of reading for school and also developing a crushing depression and an interest in World of Warcraft. (laughs) (laughs) Strategic indulgence. Strategic. It It was completely unstrategic. I was burying my head in the sand because I was miserable. But... When you're a little bit younger and you have slightly fewer responsibilities, up until the 2010s, teens were reading lots for pleasure. I used to get through books like you would not believe. But nowadays, they really are very distracted by all that flashy stuff on social media. I mean, these are apps and platforms which have been specifically designed to leverage themselves to be the most attractive and attention-holding that they can be. Having mentioned World of Warcraft, people have done entire studies, like master's theses, on the way uh, Blizzard, as a games company, is really, really good at making their games actually addictive, to the point where they act like taking a drug recreationally, as far as the effect on your brain chemistry can be. So, you know, when people are using those techniques to keep you staring at Facebook, They've done the work. It's not the teen's fault, actually. It's the important thing. Now, they do have some numbers to accompany this old man sat on a porch rant, which isn't coming from an old man sat on a porch at all, but from Jean Twenge, author of the book iGen and professor of psychology at San Diego State University, who reports that in the early 1990s, 33% of 10th graders said they read a newspaper almost every day. By 2016, that number was 2%. Of course, newspapers, access to media, that's a whole other thing. In the late 1970s, 60% of 12th graders said they read a book or a magazine almost every day. By 2016, 16% did. And the number of reading books is down, even those reading e-books is going down and down and down. Twenge even relates this to the decline in teens going to the theatre to watch a movie. Quoting, Blockbuster video and VCRs didn't kill going to the movies, but... Streaming video apparently did. That sounds like someone who has not watched a VCR in a very long time. Because, <laughs> boy, that technology was inadequate. Like, it came out two years after the film came out in the theatre. Yeah. In, like, yeah. very poor quality on not a very nice TV. The main difference is the time jump between being able to see it at the cinema and being able to watch it at home. Especially when some things broadcast simultaneously on Netflix or another hosting provider, or there are direct-to-digital films by the boatload. So, like, I mean, that's... This is me sounding like an old man on the porch now, shaking my fist at a broadband box. I mean, you do that often anyway, but that's that's because our route is not very good. But, Twange does mention the difference is probably in not the intelligence of young people today, because, like, they're still human beings with human brains which have the processing capacity that they've always had but more in the fact that with the way social media delivers information kids aren't getting the opportunity to develop the ability to focus for long enough to read something long form useful quote down here at the end of being able to read long form text is crucial for understanding complex issues and developing critical thinking skills democracies need informed voters and involve citizens who can think through issues that might be more difficult for people of all ages now that online information is the norm. Which I would argue 
There's a lot of people who spend lots of time reading, making very poorly informed political decisions at the moment. But that's that's me being an angry old man again. But while we're talking about the ways our use of the internet is changing our experience of the world, how about physical confidence in ourselves? And now most of the faces you might see in a given day are on a screen, having been run through like a dozen filters. So... Airbrushed beyond the point of reality. Everyone is smooth and soft and pale. Whatever could that do for someone's perception of a human body, let alone their own body? Well, Boston Medical Center researchers, writing in the JAMA Facial Plastic Surgery Viewpoint magazine, have a few thoughts. Neelam Vashi, MD, director of the Ethnic Skin Center at BMC and Boston University School of Medicine, says a new phenomenon called Snapchat dysmorphia has popped up, where patients are seeking out surgery to help them appear more like the filtered versions of themselves. Filtered selfies make people lose touch with reality, creating the expectation we're all supposed to look perfect all the time. This is something I've seen discussed on social media, is that... You know how, like, when we were teenagers, 14-year-olds looked like gangly, awkward children? And now they're all wearing so much makeup? And a lot of this is because of the Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube influencers and beauty gurus out there you have to be broadcast ready at all times yeah the idea of going out without your contour on point is unthinkable and it's like you're 14 you should be like sneaking slider down the back of the park oh you can still do that with your face on but you know you should be like kicking a ball around and being really awkward actually you should just be you should be being really awkward i know i was (sighs) Developing an appreciation for the ways that, like, you can be weird and also a good person at the same time. Hmm. Because that's what grown-ups are. At least the ones we associate with. Yeah. And this is definitely echoed by a few tabloid horror stories that you might have come across in the past couple of months or years where people end up with severe eating disorders or starving themselves even to the point of death because of what the tabloids would describe as a selfie obsession which is maybe not especially kind, because if people are going through a mental and physical health breakdown, then just saying, oh, you kids and your selfies doesn't really deal with all of the underlying issues here of an app which is designed to be as obsessive as possible, to hold as much attention as possible and make you feel like you must be brand perfect at all times. The situation there is less that... Social media is causing people to have eating disorders, but it is making it harder for people to get treated and recover, and it's making them worse, because that obsession with the image is what it's all about. That being able to control the way you look is what it is all about. Probably most people in, let's say, the Western world have some disordered eating habits, because we've got like a pretty screwed up approach to food and the kids who are on social media all the time are way more vulnerable to falling in that trap and making themselves very unwell. And this does lead into work from New York University who find that beauty is simpler and less special than we realise, that while other philosophers would recommend that you spend hours meditating on the beauty of something, where you stare at it for untold ages just to try and derive the beauty of it, You can actually probably figure it out within a second. You look at something and you say, yeah, 
I like that, or mm, not a fan. And this isn't so much about the physical beauty of a person as much as it is just the beauty that is all around us, every day. Landscapes, some quite pleasingly put-together buildings, the faces of people passing by on the street. Dennis Pelly, professor at NYU's Department of Psychology and a co-author of the paper, says, Philosophers have long supposed that the feeling of beauty is a special kind of pleasure, yet our analysis of research shows the feeling of beauty may merely be a very intense pleasure, and not otherwise special. They've even managed to locate it to a pleasure centre in the brain in the orbitofrontal cortex. They expect that a clearer understanding of what makes something beautiful or how we experience beauty could change the way we understand our own decision-making, but they warn against overgeneralizing what is beautiful while typically something that's more symmetrical or something that's more round might be considered more beautiful. Sometimes it's the things that buck that trend that really capture our attention. So I guess to round out our advice to... Anyone who is a student, who is interacting with students, or has anything to say in the way that students are conducting themselves, indulge every now and again. Try something new. Read some books. Doesn't really matter which ones. Just read some books. I will recommend. Not of Mice and Men. I don't know why people love it. Read enough of the right things. Be funny, not boring. Make jokes, but not offensive ones. Appreciate beauty. But don't spend all of your time and effort on it. And definitely appreciate that the beautiful, perfect faces you see on the internet are not how those people look in real life. Yeah, real life. I think that's generally the approach we're recommending here. <laughs> uh, you'll, you'll probably figure it out. Does that sound like the kind of advice you wish you'd gotten when you were starting university? No, I wish I'd got the advice to uh, cut my hair and be more gay. <laughs> Get the haircut. Dump the crap boyfriend. You know, looking back on it, that's probably the advice I would give myself mm -hmm, as well. I had mm -hmm. some very questionable haircuts, and I definitely <laughs> could have been more gay. <laughs> so yeah, actually, that is my advice to everyone. Get an unexpected haircut, and be more gay. Well, bear that in mind as we leave you with these last few tidbits of sociology and psychology to keep your brain pan rattling all through Freshers' Week. Apparently, hipsters can dress ironically. Through four experiments in an exploratory survey, Warren and Moore found that consumers sometimes use products ironically to signal one thing to an in-group while signalling something different to an out-group. Personally, I'm about enjoying things sincerely. Also to be recommended. Not to be recommended. Climate change denial strongly linked to right-wing nationalism. But then, if you've been following American politics lately, that is not so surprising. And European. And Asian. And African. And Australian. And South America. It's... The world is an interesting place. On that note... If you have been missing us and you're glad to have us back, if you've been wondering where we've been, if you want to shout at us that we should never have gone away in the first place, then you can leave all your thoughts with us at Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter, or send them via an email to EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. And if you love us and want to help other people find us, you can always make that happen by leaving a review of the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. And if you really, really, really love us, we've started a coffee. Coffee? 
If you've been on the internet for a while, you've probably spotted them popping up. But if you want to help us defray the costs of hosting, the costs of our equipment, and help us to just keep doing this in a way that doesn't drain our bank accounts, then kicking us a few quid through that is a fantastic help. It would be nice. Thank you very much. Join us next time when we tackle the best bit of the scientific calendar, the Ig Nobel Prize. That is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye-bye.